In 19 states of the U.S., it's still legal for teachers to hit kids in school. That's something we've understood to be a bad thing in Canada, and we outlawed the practice. Now, before you start feeling so great about Canada and our superiority in this regard in comparison to our neighbors to the south, know this. We made it illegal for teachers to hit kids in 2004. 2004! My name is Eric Bowman, I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. In 1892, Canada added Section 43 to our criminal code. It said that anyone in an authority position over a child can use whatever force is necessary to ensure that child does what they want them to do. Now, it wasn't until 112 years later that we amended this section. And even then, we didn't outlaw the practice of hitting children entirely. We just made it so only parents could inflict corporal punishment, that they couldn't use a weapon to do so, and that they had to wait until their children turned two years old before they hit them. We are way behind a huge portion of the rest of the world in banning corporal punishment, but we're hoping to redress this soon. The CPA has just sent a letter in support of Senator Kutcher's Bill S-251, which would repeal that section of our criminal code and bring us in line with the science, the evidence, and 65 other countries around the world. Joining me on the program today are my co-worker Catherine, the CPA's Sponsorship and Development Lead, and we also have an expert in child developmental psychology and corporal punishment who has been campaigning to repeal Section 43 for more than three decades. I'm Dr. Joan Durant. I'm a child clinical and developmental psychologist, and I'm um, a senior scholar, recently retired professor from the Department of Community Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. I wanted to start with just a little background of what we're discussing here, and you can tell me if I get any of this wrong, but it strikes me that in the late 19th century, we in Canada, put Section 43 into the criminal code, which basically says it's okay to strike children in a disciplinary manner whenever you feel like it, and that it was then okay for people who are in a position of authority outside of the parents, so school teachers and that sort of thing, to also strike children. And more than 100 years later, we made an amendment to this in about 2004, which then said, well, there are some restrictions. They have to be a certain age before you can hit them, and they have to be right, all this kind of thing. I was very surprised, I must say, that 2004, we still thought this way. I, I don't think of that as ancient history, right? And I also, seems to me that we, as a society, have come to this idea that maybe it's not a good idea to hit children, and we probably should stop doing that. And I thought we had got there before 2004, but I do think it's a fairly recent thing. But you, uh, Dr. Durant, I think have been on this uh, case for about 30 years now. So this isn't anything new for the experts in the field. It's just sort of new for the rest of us. Is that about right? Or have all of us kind of known this for 30 years? No, I think that what you say represents what a lot of Canadians think. That I think um, many people are very surprised to learn that our law still allows parents to hit their children. And until 2004, allowed teachers also to hit children. You're correct that that law was codified into our criminal code in 1892. And it's much older than that, actually, because as a British colony and dominion, we inherited British common law. And that's where this defense comes from. So all British colonies have this defense. And it came from a ruling 
that I believe it was in 1860, that was a case of a schoolmaster who had beaten a student to death in England. And that schoolmaster was charged and was convicted of manslaughter. And the ruling, the judge said that in order to correct what is evil in the child, parents, schoolmasters, and people standing in the place of parents are justified in using force to correct them, but that force must be reasonable in the circumstances. In other words, you should not kill them. And actually, there are jurisdictions that still have laws like that, like Texas, for example, has a law that says you can do virtually anything as long as you don't kill the child. So once you've killed them, it's no longer corrective, I suppose. But up to that point, they can learn from it in theory. So this law comes from a way of thinking of children as learning from pain. And that's a very colonial idea. This idea did not exist in Indigenous communities before the colonizers came. And this has been spread, as I mentioned, through all British colonies. It's a tool of oppression. Over the decades, every other group of Canadians has been given full protection. That defense has been eradicated. So it's been abolished for apprentices. Apprentices used to be in our law. So a master could beat his apprentice to teach them. Ship's captains used to be able to whip their sailors. That was just abolished in the 20th century. Of course, there was a common law that a defense for husbands who beat their wives. And that the common law judgment that allowed that to happen was said that husbands are to answer for their wives' behavior. They're responsible for how their wives act, so they have the right to hit them as correction. We've gotten rid of all of that for obvious reasons that don't need to be explained, <laughs> except for children. And until 2004, we could still hit babies. The Supreme yeah. Court ruled in 2004 that the child had to be two years old. So happy birthday, two-year-olds. You can now be hit. You're old enough, apparently, to learn from being hit. The Supreme Court also said that you can only hit children below the chin. You can't hit their heads or their faces, but you can hit them anywhere else on their body. They also ruled that you can't hit them with an object now. 2004. Wow. We finally can't hit children with sticks and spoons and things, but you can hit them with your hand. From a child's point of view, it's hard to know what difference that makes, whether a parent is hitting you with a stick or their hand, you're still having pain inflicted upon you by the person who's supposed to keep you safe. They also ruled that you can't hit a child in anger or frustration, which begs the question, why then would you be hitting them? If you had rational thoughts in your head, why would you be choosing to hit instead of doing something that's actually going to help them learn? So the Supreme Court ruling put a set of limits on the defense. They didn't change anything in the criminal code. The law remains. So it's up to judges now to try to figure out what all those limits mean, how they work together. Are you, if you violate one limit, therefore, have you committed an, an assault or do you have to have broken all of them? It's 
it's really, as I've heard said, a dog's breakfast. And um, the judges are having a very difficult time knowing what sense to make of all those limitations. And generally what they do is say, well, the defense is there, so it's a green light, basically. When the Supreme Court ruling was released, I did a, an analysis of the first 400 and so postings to Canada.com expressing responses to it. And a lot of people thought that corporal punishment had been against the law before and that the Supreme Court had now said, you can do it. It was a very counterproductive decision. They had an opportunity to say, okay, 2004, we don't ever say that any kind of hitting of children is okay in Canada anymore. But they didn't choose to do that. They chose to say, it's still okay to hit your child as long as it's below the chin, with the hand, the child is between 2 and 12. So many people interpreted that as now, oh, now we can hit them. So that was a really counterproductive decision that did the wrong kind of public education. And now here we are 19 years after that, and uh, we at the CPA have just signed on to a letter encouraging the passage of Bill S-251, which is the bill that would repeal that section of the criminal code and basically, as you say, make it, you know, a crime to hit a child. And we're 131 years or so after this was actually put in. It's a very slow process, isn't it? That uh, <laughs> And like yeah. you said, right, in 2004, people assumed it was already illegal, right? Yes. That obviously by now we've understood enough about it. So maybe you could talk to, talk to us a little bit about the science behind this. I mean, what is it that makes hitting a child not a corrective, but rather abusive? Yes, there's a, a ton of research actually on the impacts of corporal punishment. There's so much and it's so consistent that you just can't believe that anybody could still argue that it has any useful purpose. Setting aside the whole question of children as human beings with rights to protection. If we just look at, well, does it help them or harm them? There are more than 100 studies. There are several meta-analyses. There are, there's a meta-analysis that I was actually part of, published in The Lancet, that looked at 69 longitudinal studies. So these are studies that controlled for children's behavior at time one, and then followed over time. There are sophisticated statistical analyses done. There's no more any excuse of, well, those are all correlational studies and, you know, maybe parents hit more when their children have more behavior problems. That's not the case. We know that corporal punishment never reduces aggression or behavior problems. It always increases it. So every study shows that children who are hit more are more aggressive tend to be. We're talking risk. We're not talking a deterministic absolute guarantee. But if you're raised with corporal punishment, it's more likely that as a child, you will demonstrate more aggression and that that continues actually into adulthood. So corporal punishment predicts higher levels of dating violence and higher levels of intimate partner violence in adulthood, which is really something we have to stop and think about. What we know is that children learn through modeling. We've known that since the 60s with Albert Bandura and the Bobo dolls, right? So right. they were, he showed them um, aggressive videos and children who watched those aggressive videos hit those Bobo dolls more than the children who 
watch non-aggressive videos. And this has just been demonstrated over and over. We know all about observational learning. So when parents hit their children, what is happening is that the child is seeing a very powerful model, a high esteem model, solving a problem, expressing emotion through aggression. So that enters the child's repertoire. Not only that, but every time that happens, an opportunity has been lost for that child to see an alternative way of solving conflict. So they've lost an opportunity to see how do you communicate? How do you listen? How do you um, figure out, like solve the problem? Every time the child's hit, that opportunity for learning has been taken away. We also know from recent MRI studies that physical punishment affects the brain, that it actually structurally alters children's brains in the areas that are involved in self-regulation. So their brains are being primed to respond to the stress response with a less regulated behavioral response. So there are many reasons, those and more, for why we see this consistent relationship between corporal punishment and higher levels of aggression. But we also see highly consistent relationships between corporal punishment and internalizing problems, anxiety, depression, even suicidal ideation. And those are in highly controlled studies. I really have to emphasize that. These are not just, you know... Anecdotal uh, examples. Right? Yeah, or, or simple correlational studies. These are these, There's a lot of meat in these studies. We also know that children who are spanked, tapped, the little slaps and so on, are at heightened risk for increasingly severe violence. And that's because once a parent has started hitting, they've really raised the stakes in that interaction. They've kind of backed themselves into a corner. If a child who has been slapped says, no, I won't. If a parent is slapping, they're in a highly aroused state, right? If you right. if you hit somebody, you're not thinking very rationally in most cases. So they're already highly aroused. They've struck out with aggression, which tends to amplify your arousal. The child resists. The parent has nowhere to go. They, they feel like they can't back down now. And what do experts tell parents? Always follow through. If you say you're going to do something, do it. So if they say, if you do that, I'll spank you. And the child says, no then they feel they have to follow through and start hitting. And they have, they think that what I need to do is hit harder. And those situations can escalate so quickly because the level of arousal of both people just really shoots up and the child becomes more resistant or cries or screams or runs away. And that just escalates the parent's arousal more. And what we know from a number of studies is that the primary reason for what we call child abuse, violence against children, injuries, hospitalizations, the primary source of that is discipline. The parent has set out to teach the child a lesson. And we've known that since the 1970s with David Gill's studies. He looked at all the cases of child abuse in the United States and the majority of them were parents who said, well, I was just trying to teach him a lesson. I just wanted him to stop wetting his pants. I just wanted him to stop throwing his toys. 
And those situations escalated to injurious levels. I was raised in a time when there were no seatbelts in cars. And my parents drove me all over the continent every summer because they were teachers. We drove all over North America every summer. My sister and I completely unrestrained in the back seat, upside down, legs hanging out the windows, you know, poking each other. And I was never injured. I'm fine. But what did we do? We looked at the research and we saw consistently that children who are not restrained are at a much higher risk of injury and fatality. So we chose to pass laws to make it very clear that every child had to be restrained and people couldn't say, well, you know, I'm just going to the store or I'm just, you know, going down the street or I drive very slowly so it won't, they won't get hurt. It was for everybody. Everybody had to restrain their children. And we did a lot of public education. And this is a very similar situation. I could have been, I wasn't, but I could have been hit as a child and, you know, function fine and not be an aggressive person, not be a depressed person. But the chances were greater than if I had been raised in a family where people talked, where we listened to each other, where we solved problems together, where we showed respect to each other and we didn't hit each other. The chances are greater that I will be healthy mentally and physically if I'm raised in a family that communicates in a healthy way than if I'm raised in a family that hits. And it's as simple as that. So what we want to do is make the law clear so that it's no longer saying, as long as it's just a little bit, as long as it's under these circumstances. If we think, you know, would we ever have such a way of thinking about elderly people with dementia who might have you know cognitive deficits that make it difficult for them to learn what if an elderly person consistently wandered at night and so their caregiver said well you know i've explained it i've told them but they keep doing it so i think the only answer is to hit them and the law says yeah that's okay because You've tried other things and you're not hitting them hard and you're not hitting them on the head and you're not using objects. So, yeah, that's okay. We would never stand for that. Right. And why? Because of the disrespect, the basic violation of that person's dignity. And we entrust care to people like parents, teachers, youth workers, personal care workers, nurses, we entrust them with our with our very selves. And if that trust is violated, we see that as a serious breach. We see it that way for everybody but children between the ages of 2 and 12. Right. And I think it's interesting you mentioned the, the seatbelt thing, right? Whenever I see people talking about this online, and they do, and there's this... I guess, nostalgia for an age that I'm not sure ever truly existed, right? When people talk about, well, I was hit as a kid and I turned out fine. They also celebrate the fact that they drove around without seatbelts on and I drank right out of the fire hose and I climbed to the top of the play structure and fell off and I ended up totally fine and that's what toughened us up as kids and obviously we're better off for it and all this kind of thing which really does look at history, I think, through some sort of rose-colored glasses that 
you know, you're remembering the best parts of your childhood that may not actually have been that great, you know, were you to go back to 1971 and actually relive them, right? And so at the same time, though, I think that there are a lot of other people, and I know a lot of people like this in my own family who say, I grew up in such an abusive situation that I was terrified to pass that on to my own children. And a lot of them have chosen not to have children of their own because they were worried about what kind of parent they would end up being. And I wonder, in that circumstance, does the self-awareness that I might end up doing something like this make that person less likely to have those proclivities to actually abuse their own children because they have that awareness or are we really talking about the people who, you know, think that this is what made me the tough guy I am today, that my parents beat me and I didn't have seatbelts and, you know, I skinned my knee all the time, right? That's a really interesting question. I'll, I'll try to take it in two parts. So if I get lost along the way, redirect me back. <laughs> um, we hear a lot. Um, I was hit as a child and I'm okay and I'm better for it. And, you know... I wouldn't, I would not presume to judge anyone's mental health. They, they may be fine and, you know, like they're functioning and contributing and have a great relationship with their parents and their siblings. They've never hurt a soul. Um, but the chances were greatly reduced of that because of being taught by their most powerful models that aggression is an appropriate response to conflict. So if we only think about ourselves, we lose the big picture. So just like me in that car, two months every year for 18 years or something, and I'm fine. But I wouldn't use that to say, so all those children who died, who suffered head injuries, whose parents were killed, who whose cars ran into other people and, and injured them, that I'm, I'm going to dismiss all of that because I personally am fine. We've got to get out of that very egocentric mindset and really accept the fact that it, it is a risk factor. It's a serious risk factor. We just have heard recently that intimate partner violence is a public health crisis in Canada. There are many factors that contribute to any incident of domestic violence, but one of them is learning to hit in response to conflict. Learning that it's okay to hit another person who's weaker physically than you are to get what you want. Learning that by hitting another person, you can change their behavior. And perhaps most importantly, learning that I hit you because I love you. As, as an aggressor or learning that when that person hits me, that's a sign of love. I met someone once who had a very different story than I'm okay, who said, you know, when I came to hear you speak, I... I just thought, ah, you know, yeah, she's going to say how we shouldn't hit children. And, you know, I was hit as a child and I'm okay. The break, she came up to me quite emotionally upset and said, I was suddenly taken back to my childhood. And I remembered how my father would throw me on the bed and say, I do this because I love you. 
And ever since then, every relationship I've had has been violent because that was ingrained in me that if he's not hurting me, he must not love me. And she was so upset when she realized that those childhood messages had been wired into her brain and into her body so deeply that that became her way of life is to live with violence. We have to come to terms with this. We have to realize what we're really doing. We're teaching children, all right, but not what we really actually think they're learning. They're learning to submit to violence. They're learning to act, to commit violence and all with permission of our law. Canada says that's okay. You can train them in childhood. That's okay, as long as you just hit them in a certain way. As far as the people who experience a lot of violence as children and are very concerned about their own you know, parenting capacities, this is a, a very, very interesting and important question. Because one message that we don't want to give is that that can never be overcome. It, it becomes almost an instinctive response because it was wired in. But you can overcome it. Um, I do a lot of parent education. I've actually created a program to help parents make that shift. And we're doing it across Canada and around the world. And it's incredible the the emotional impact of realizing that I can change. As a developmental psychologist, I believe strongly that we continue to change throughout our lives. We continue to learn. For those of us who are raised without violence, it's easier to raise children without it because we learned those other ways. We saw what that could look like. We uh, we felt what that was like in our relationships with our parents. If that's wired into us. So it's a lot easier. But I can say as a child raised without physical punishment, As a parent, that gets tested because of the stress response in our limbic systems, right? Our amygdalas, they're in there and they're reacting. And when we're frustrated and when we feel like we've just totally lost our power in a situation, that gets triggered. 99%, probably 100 actually, of parents have felt that urge. The difference is, have we learned how to inhibit it? Have we learned how to regulate that emotional arousal? And if what we've witnessed and what we've experienced is not that, it's going to be a lot harder for us to do it. But we can learn how to do it. It's just going to take a concerted effort and a strong desire. And I see that strong desire every day. Just this morning, I got a message from Fiji where our program is being implemented and it's being implemented with families in what's called red alert areas red alert by social services and police because the level of violence against children is so high and it's helping because what it does is it helps parents become aware of that urge become aware of the impact of that stress response where it comes from and how it manifests itself first step is to become aware of it. The next step is to learn how to regulate it, what to do, and to build that new habit, rewire, so that 
when that though that we call it the yellow light when that galvanic skin response <laughs> begins and the jaw tightens and the voice goes up and and you feel that taking over your body basically that's the yellow light i learn how to regulate that so that i can think again and then we help them learn how to problem solve with their child to work collaboratively with the child to help them learn what do i really want them to learn right now is it how to hit is it how to learn to be hit or is it how to communicate when you're really frustrated how to express your emotions in a way that doesn't hurt anybody and leads you to a solution that's the fork in the road in those moments when we want to hit do i want to continue down that road and teach the last thing i actually want my child to learn or do i want to go down this road where i teach them what i really want them to learn that's going to serve them throughout their life and enrich our relationship build that trust that we need to have a, a strong relationship throughout life a lot of people who have been hit as children and think they're okay if they really start to think about their relationships with their parents often they find that they are still tinged by fear by difficulty in being honest of a tendency to not seek out their parents help advice support when they're in trouble strong desire to always show i i never fail i never make mistakes i i'm always right it's insidious the impacts are insidious if we're not psychopathic killers that doesn't mean we're okay we right. can suffer from depression from anxiety from a tendency to mistrust in our relationships other relationships because as we know trust is the fundamental building block of healthy development that's where it all begins for sure and if that and trust I is violated then we learn to mistrust Sorry, we have about five minutes left in this whole thing. And Catherine, I see you've been unmuted for some time. Uh, I will leave the last question to you. No, it's okay. I had unmuted myself to to kind of connect with what you were saying, Eric, about adults and kind of that intergenerational trauma really that can be created by that sort of abuse in childhood. The the tie back for me was my grandmother being left-handed and experiencing pretty significant levels of abuse in her education growing up. And then to kind of to reflect on that and to look at her through the lens of an adult who is learning about this to kind of understand a little bit more about her as a woman who very consciously chose not to inflict any corporal punishment on her children or grandchildren because of the experiences that she had as a child. I find that is one of the greatest things in a person to be admired, to be able to stand back and look at it objectively and remember how that really felt and to be able to come to terms with that and deal with the the emotional aspect of it because it's not just physical it's deeply emotional the messages that are given when we're hit by anybody or hurt intentionally by anybody for our own good that is just that permeates our sense of self and to be able to take that and turn it around and say i i learned something very valuable from that which is that i will never ever do it to anyone else it does take a real commitment and a lot of courage actually because you you have to 
think deeply about things that you'd rather not. I, I also just want to make sure that I say that Canada's not the first country to think about changing the law. In fact, there are 65 countries now with full prohibitions of all physical punishment of children. And in addition, Scotland and Wales, which we can't call sovereign countries because they're part of the UK, but they have also prohibited all corporal punishment. And they inherited the same defense. So did New Zealand. So did many former colonies around the world, which now have full prohibitions. And they've been able to do this. They have done actually what your grandmother did. They've they've said, you know, we've got to look at this really honestly and objectively and not say, you know, our country's fine, even though we hit children. We have to say, you know, our standards have to improve. <laughs> and what we expect for the to be the lives of children has to be what's best for them. They need to grow up in safety. They need to not just get through it. They need to thrive. They need to grow into healthy adults. And that's what that's what a healthy society is. It's not about toughening kids up for all the horrible stuff they're going to have to endure. It's about changing that so that everyone is mentally well and that we don't have a public health crisis, a domestic violence, or a youth suicide, or depression and anxiety and and all the mental health problems that we're dealing with in our societies. Why would we want that? We can do so much better and build cultures and countries where people feel they can truly be themselves and they're happy and they have good relationships and that should be the simplest most basic goal of a society and eliminating the permission to hit children is the simplest step we could possibly take toward that. It's only one. We need many more. We need a lot of parent support. We need to do a lot to change the capacity of families to manage well and raise their children in a happy, healthy way. But we can do it. All of these other countries have done it. And Canada? <laughs> no, well, really. It's so that- long past time. And, you know, Canada is actually a pathfinding country in the global partnership to end violence against children. We're a pathfinder. Since Canada became a pathfinder in 2018, nine more countries have prohibited corporal punishment, and we have not. We're a laggard. We're not a pathfinder by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> we are a serious laggard because we can't do even this one most basic thing to just give children full protection. My thinking now, and and as you're describing this, right, that we have, uh, there has been a thought for a long time that some sort of corporal punishment is in fact a corrective and that it does adjust the behavior. The science and all of these studies show that that's not in fact the case, that that doesn't, only negative outcomes can occur as a result. And I'm just wondering if that's kind of a reflection on our system of punishment in general. This might be outside your scope, but I'm thinking that we send people to prison for having committed crimes of all kinds, right? And very often they're not crimes that are super detrimental to society at large, right? They're not necessarily murders and rapes and that kind of thing. They're, you know, possession of some drugs, their failure to show up to 
your court date and that kind of thing, right? And we put people in prison and that's the punishment in the theory that it will correct that behavior going forward. And I'm thinking that there might be a parallel there and that it might not correct any of that behavior when we're doing that sort of thing. I'm wondering if that's something you could speak to, if there's a correlation there that I'm imagining or that may actually exist. Well, I think it's actually very closely related to this, the idea that we have in many colonial societies that punishment is any kind of effective way of teaching. It's all related. And, you know, if we think about what prison does, what it does is it takes people out of the context where they need to learn new ways of managing whatever has led them there, or they need their context needs to change, or they need money. They're very poor, or they have addictions. They need addictions treatment. They There are so many reasons why people commit crimes. And prison, just like physical punishment, doesn't address those reasons at all. And in fact, it it removes the person from the situation where they could potentially, where we should be building those supports and alternative avenues. And it puts them into a context where the opportunities to learn new skills, to get addictions treatment, to get mental health supports, to earn money are actually greatly reduced. And then when they come out again, they're even more disadvantaged because it's very difficult to get a job now with a your record and so on and so on and so on. So prison doesn't really do anything constructive. It's just, it's a, it's a way to remove people from the society that whose behavior we find has been in violation. And, and of course, there are people who harm other people. And there are people who, you know, can do a lot of damage that the, the, we need to find ways of dealing with those situations that actually leads to a better outcome rather than removing all the opportunities for living in a different way. So it's the same with physical punishment. It's a quick and easy way to respond to, I don't like what you did, so whack, but it doesn't do anything to help the child learn what we really want them to learn, to scaffold their understanding, to express their emotions in a healthy way. And, you know, the physical punishment also plays a role in crime. It right. predicts higher levels of what we used to call delinquency or antisocial behavior, conduct disorders of criminal activity in adolescence and adulthood. You know, <laughs> right? I, I guess is... yeah, we're, we're, we really have this idea that Punishment is a teaching tool, so deeply embedded, but really what it often is, is retributive. You know, it's our way of getting even. And that's true for parents, too. There's that feeling that can't do that to me. I'll teach you. It's not that I'm going to teach you how to be in this world. Not It's not about how I'm going to teach you how to communicate with other people when you disagree. It's about I'm going to teach you. You can't do that to me. You can't treat me that way. You can't speak to me like that. You can't. It's it's a way of exerting power and getting, in a lot of cases, revenge. When a child experiences corporal punishment, they are more likely to wind up with mental health issues, like you said, anxiety, depression, that sort of thing, more likely to end up with addiction issues, therefore more likely to wind up in the criminal justice system, at which point they are getting a different form of retributive punishment, uh, which also does nothing. And it seems to be this cycle that perpetuates itself 
And one of one of the obvious things I think, obviously, that we can do is make it illegal to punish children uh, in a corporal manner from the very beginning, right? Not just between the ages of two and 15 or whatever arbitrary age range we've decided is okay, right? But, you know, uh, across the board, the only thing that I would say then is that then when a parent does that, they are then being put into this criminal justice system, which (laughs) then, right, perpetuates a similar kind of ineffectual redress for that situation as we go forward. So I'm wondering if you have a notion of how that would look. All right, you can't hit kids anymore. If you do, this is what happens because we're aiming for a society that understands all of these things better. Can you speak to that in some way? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. It's really important. What has happened in the other countries that have prohibited physical punishment is not prosecution. So technically, yes, if you hit a two-year-old now, it's the same as if you hit an adult. It's the same assault. Assault is assault. doesn't matter on the age and size of the person you're assaulting. So technically, it is a criminal act. But these laws just as they should be, are implemented in the best interests of the public, the family, and the child. There has to be a public interest in laying charges, first of all. So if a parent, you know, freaks out when their child runs into the street and gives them a smack on the bottom, they're not going to be charged. That's in nobody's interest. And a charge, that charge would never be upheld. It would never get to court. And there are other laws that protect our ability to do, um, for example, nurturant care, necessary care, and things that keep children safe, first of all. And then there are also, there's a common law defense of de de minimis, de minimis non curat lex, which means that the law does not take account of trifles. I've looked at the charging and prosecution rates in a number of countries that have changed their laws prosecutions don't increase at all. Reporting does, because now people are more aware that, you know, you can't do that. And so what happens is that the police and social services work together. There are prosecutorial guidelines that are developed, and police and social welfare work together to divert to parent education parent support. If parents are hitting their children, now it's seen as they need more help. They need more support. They need more information. They need more knowledge. They need, they don't need to go to court and go to jail. That's the last thing that's needed. What they need is to have their difficulties, their challenges recognized and have the country come to their support. So as I mentioned, I do parent support all over Canada and all over the world. That's what we need to do. We need to tell parents what they do is important, recognize it's so difficult and that there's no preparation whatsoever. What has been done in other countries, I'll give you Wales as an example. They, when they prohibited corporal punishment, they gave a a two-year window before that law would come into force, which is the longest I think I've ever heard of. Um, What they said as part of that bill was in those two years the government will do everything it can to raise awareness and put 
millions of dollars into parent support. They organized things like summer road shows where they went to public events and gave out information about the law and information about where parents could get support and help. They have a, a big campaign. They have all kinds of stuff available on websites. They are doing everything they can to help parents get through those moments of crisis. But what we know is there's no evidence that charging and prosecution has increased because that's not the point. The point is to send a clear message. No, it actually reduces the chances that parents are going to get into difficulty because they know what's allowed and what isn't. Right now, how many parents have read that Supreme Court judgment? I haven't read that Supreme Court judgment, and I'm talking about it on a podcast. So uh, Judges can't make sense of it. So what we're doing is saying the law says it's okay, and what social workers have to do is teach parents about that Supreme Court judgment and tell them how they can legally hit their children. You know, all that's doing is putting parents into a very high-risk situation because they don't know where's the limit. You're telling me I can, but there's this gray area, and I don't know where the edges of it are, but I know I can hit, so I'm going to hit. Right. And then it escalates, and then they're in trouble. But you told me I can hit. If we send a clear message, no hitting, we're already inhibiting a lot of those impulses. We're making it very clear like nobody in Canada is saying that this is a good thing. So parents know like none. So so it's an inhibitory mechanism. And so the chances that parents are going to hit their children will decrease. The chances of people being drawn into the, ch- the criminal justice system have decreased. And the charging and prosecution is not the objective, and it has not been the objective in any of these countries. Now, you you mentioned several of these countries, and I'm wondering if any of these countries, uh, you mentioned Wales a couple of times, but you 65 other countries around the world. Have any of these countries had this provision in place long enough that we can see long-term results and how mm-hmm. that country now is a little different as a result of having put these restrictions into place long ago, presumably, uh, maybe some of them a hundred years ago. I I don't know how long ago the earliest uh, laws were passed, but... They have. So Iceland never had such a defense, uh, and their jails are not full of parents. (laughs) Right. Sweden is usually identified as the first, but they did what we're looking at doing now, removing the criminal defense. They did that in 1957. Okay. Then they formally explicitly prohibited it because they wanted to make it crystal clear in 1979. And I've done a lot of research on Sweden because I really was intrigued. That's one of the reasons I got into this whole area of research in the first place was learning about their ban and thinking, wow, how did they they do that? And like, how do parents think there? How do they think about this law? How do they think about children? And so I spent a lot of time there studying social trends there and prosecutions have not increased in sweden they have not increased in germany that did this in 2000 they have not increased in new zealand that did it in 2007 they have not increased in countries like let's see israel in 2000 oh gosh they're they're all over the world like there are 11 or 12 countries in africa that have prohibitions there's been no evidence of increased prosecutions. There are 
countries in a lot of countries in South America, actually, the majority of countries in South America. I could look up all the dates so that you can see because it's very interesting to see how long this has been going on. Yeah. Well, I'm um, I'm interested in that we're, what, 66 years behind Sweden or something like that. I'm wondering, though, not in terms of prosecution, although I do want to get back to that in a second, because it strikes me that one of the reasons that you wouldn't be prosecuting people is just that you don't hear about this. It might still continue to go on, but it's within the family. It's a very small child. No one's reporting. Mm -hmm. So... Why? How would you prosecute somebody when nobody knows it's it's taking place? So I'm wondering about that. But first, I'm just wondering, Sweden, for example, since 1957, put it specifically into law in 79, uh, can you trace in that population, uh, say, less of a level of anxiety and depression among the adult population in Sweden as a result of this? Or is that a little too tenuous a link to be able to make uh, through research. Well, um, this is a, the question I looked at. I wanted, I looked at trends over time. I looked at youth involvement in crime, youth mental health, youth suicide, um, the kinds of things that you would think would be related to corporal punishment. And everything is better. I did my research in the 90s. I haven't done it since then, but at that time, everything was better. And the frequency of being hit was so low. only 10% of youth in Sweden say they have ever been hit and over 90% of those say once in their entire lifetime. Um, So the the frequency and the prevalence is very, very low there. Can we attribute any changes, you know, improvements in mental health, decreases in youth involvement in crime, so on, to the ban? No, because it's like every society, a complex society, many factors going into that, all kinds of policies, right, that are trying to build a healthier society. What it does show, though, is having a defense, a criminal defense, removing that doesn't make things worse. (laughs) Right. Right. So, so there, nothing was lost by that. The youth didn't run wild in the streets and so on. And they, you know, didn't all feel unloved because they weren't being hit anymore. Also, what they did was, um, I tracked apprehensions, child apprehensions and social welfare. They actually declined by half over 15, 20 years, children were much less likely to be taken into care. What we need to think about is not just this law in isolation. The law is a symbol and the law goes along with a lot of other things. That's what I was thinking when you were saying that, right? Because there's no way to say that the law is the reason that these outcomes have improved, but it is a symbol of a society that is presumably more progressive in many ways and therefore has many other policies that would result in these more positive outcomes down the line, I would imagine, right? Yeah, and it can also be a launching pad for parent support and education because what governments have done is said, and this is why I've been doing what I do all over the world, it's usually in countries that have prohibitions and then they say, okay, now we really have to, but we want this to work. We want this to, to change how we treat children. So we know that, you know, you can't just change your whole way of being overnight. Parents need support. So it's it's a, it's a launch pad for parent support and education in in these countries. So where, like, where these laws have been passed or, like, 
the criminal defense has been removed, depending on how they've gone about it, as particularly in the wealthier countries like Canada and like Western Europe, there's been a lot of investment in parent support. And because the government has said, this is just the right thing to do. Like, where have we been all these years? Why did we Why did we let this happen? Why did, weren't we supporting families? And so a lot of effort has been put into building that support system for parents. And that communicates, you're important. Children are important. We're not here to punish you and to, that's not the point. The point is to let's build a better world for children. Let's build a better way of being with children. And they've used the law to do a lot of education around the rights of children to protection, the kinds of policies that are being put into place to make that a reality. So it becomes a very powerful educational tool. If we think back to when, I mean, I lived through a time when we had these debates about whether husbands should be able to get their wives, honestly. Right. And in fact, we had these debates around marital rape. I remember watching Phil Donahue and hearing people say, but she's his wife. This is right. Right. And to this and day, that was actually yeah, I've seen American argument. lawmakers actually say on the floor of the Senate or the House or wherever they are that you it's physically impossible to rape your wife. They still believe yeah. that like this year I've seen this, right? And I, I'm not equating spanking a child to marital rape. What I want to do is help us recognize that these we've had these debates about every protection that's been added for different groups in our society. So as we have protected women more, we've had these debates. We've had all the fears of all the men are going to be thrown into jail. If they're hitting their wives, then, then there's an intervention of some kind. But instead of saying it's okay or saying nothing, we say, okay, we're setting a standard for our society. And then what did we do? We did a ton of awareness raising. We've shifted the whole norm. When we change those laws, we change the norm. And then we could give clear messages. Never, 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 never. And that was really important in shifting the culture and in protecting women. We made the decision to no longer whip criminals. Right. Which we did. And now we would say we did what? But at that time, there was a big debate. They deserve it. They, you know, there were all kinds of ways to legitimate whipping criminals. But we stopped that. So now the only people left are two-year-olds, for heaven's sake. Right. And preteens, you know, like two to 12. It's quite unbelievable that those are the only people we can hit. We can't hit serial killers. Right. And we can't hit we can't hit our bosses when they won't give us a day off. And we can't hit our employees when they don't get their work done on time. And teachers can't hit students in school anymore. I grew up with the strap. That was a decades long debate. Right. Whether that should continue or not. Teachers were given a strap when they first started teaching. That was part of the part of the materials. Here are your textbooks and here's your leather strap. If somebody said, I think we should start hitting children with belts in school, we, the Canadians would be outraged. But at that time, there were many arguments against it and how children were going to run wild and teachers were going to be thrown into jail. And, you know, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> it's a shift in norms. It's a it's a clear message saying in Canada, we just don't allow it. We don't have laws that say 
as long as you, you know, if I go into the supermarket and I taste a grape, I'm not going to get charged for that. But the law doesn't say that. The law doesn't say as long as you only eat one grape, you eat two, well, that's a problem. You know, right. as long as they're green grapes, not red grapes. Or grapes are okay, but not an apple. Or apples okay, but not a watermelon. You know, we don't say some level of that is okay. We just say no theft. But for me to be charged for a minor breach of that law would not be in no one's interest. There'd be so it would be so expensive. <laughs> And it would serve no purpose. It's not in the public interest. Yeah, I I think you're touching on something interesting too, right? Which is just this gradient that we have over time where we, we do this for almost everything, right? Where we say, okay, we don't think you should be doing that, but banning it outright seems extreme. So let's, you know create some rules where it's okay in this circumstance. And I'm thinking of, I presume this wasn't in Canada, but I think it was in England in, you know, the 18th century, the rule of thumb, right? You can beat your wife with a stick if you want, but it can't be any wider than your thumb. That's the rule that we're going to go with. That is acceptable, right? And I think throughout time, we've always, the slow bend of the moral arc of history, I guess, is the is the takeaway I have there. And certainly in Canada, where we're talking 100 plus years, it's been very slow. This bill that to repeal Section 43 now is the 17th or 18th bill that's come yeah. before the House or the Senate. There have been so many attempts. The last senator who introduced such a bill was Murray Sinclair, who was right. the head of the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he recognized the colonial aspect and the archaic aspect of this law and you know i think one of the reasons why children is last is they don't vote right and they they have no political power and they have no well really no power at all they can't leave their homes if they're being beaten they've got nowhere to go if they do then they end up on the street a three-year-old has nothing they can't do anything they have no power at all they have no voice And so it's very easy to maintain that power over them because we adults make the laws. We make those decisions. So those little toddlers are last to get protection because they have no way to exert their agency, you know, to say, we don't want to be hit by our parents. And we see this all through an adult lens, all of it. And if you read the Supreme Court decision, it's all through an adult lens. You know, we're worried about the adults. If they're not hitting their children, they have absolutely nothing to worry about. Right. We're protecting the adults who are hurting children. Yeah. And I saw that in this latest uh, bill to repeal Section 43, there's an explicit connection to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. As you mentioned, right, Murray Sinclair was the first to put this up there. Now, Senator Kutcher is putting this up there. It is one of the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for all of us as Canadians, right? Not just for Indigenous youth, but for youth in general. This is something, and as you said earlier, Indigenous people have never done this. This has never been part of their culture. It is a colonial thing, the corporal punishment of children that we brought in, you know, hundreds of years ago, and that now we're uh, looking to sort of go backwards and and fix in a way, right? Retroactively almost, but obviously going forward is the only way. Now, the one question I did have, though, is that 
I'm surprised because you said in Sweden, fewer than 10% of youth say that they have been hit at any time in their lives, which is a great statistic, indicates that this system is working. But I'm thinking that this is one of those crimes like spousal abuse, like sexual assault that happens behind closed doors. And we have all kinds of statistics on how underreported sexual assault is, how underreported domestic abuse is as a result of it happening behind closed doors and as a result of the court proceeding being a very he said, she said, or he said, he said situation, which is very difficult for the people involved in it. I think you're saying this is basically something that would be kept out of the court system, but simply by having that law on the books, parents will then understand and act accordingly. And it doesn't have to be one of these, this gets reported, this gets put in front of a judge and a jury or where, whatever it might be, that simply by having this as the law of the land in Canada will convince and steer parents on the right path. Yes. So the law has a very important symbolic function. It also has a very important psychological function because it inhibits behavior. It, it defines for us in our minds what's right and what's wrong. So if we have a law that says you can hit your wife as long as it's not on her head, and as long as she's between the ages of 20 and 30, then the inhibitory function of law is greatly compromised, right? Right. If we have a law that says you don't hit any other adult, then you learn that. You learn that that gets embedded in your being. So it has a very important psychological function, as well as symbolic, as well as just regulatory for the society. You started by asking about the youth reporting on their own experiences. That's a, also a really good question. In Sweden, they do regular um, surveys and they ask parents, how often have you physically punished your child? But they also ask the youth themselves. It's a self-report. And these aren't cases that have gone to cornering. They just ask them as part of a survey, how often were you slapped or spanked in your lifetime? And so there's self-reports and their validity is um, sort of reflected in the fact that they've been doing these for a long time and that proportion keeps decreasing. Back in the 50s, like there was, kids were hit a lot and right. they were hit with objects and like virtually everybody was beaten. And today, almost nobody. And that's in, how many years is that? 70 years or something. Right. Um, and you see that decline like this. And it's the same in New Zealand. The, it's just this precipitous decline. And in other Germany, the ways that people define violence against children shifts as well. So in Germany, for example, they ask parents, and they did huge surveys of youth, whether they considered various acts to be violence, like a slap on the face, or a beating with a stick, or a this is mild slap on the bottom. or And so they gave them a range of acts and asked them, you know, which of these would you define as violence? And that shifted hugely over a very short period of time. So many more people were defining that what we, we adults say are minor to a child that might not be, but what we define as minor was shifting so that the threshold changes. I remember hearing um, a presenter at a conference from Germany that had done a study 
of children's definitions of the worst violence they could experience. Like, how, how would you, what's the worst thing that could happen that your parents could do to you? Right. Ethically, I don't know how we do that today, but <laughs> the children who had never been hit said being slapped. The children who had been hit a lot said being beaten to the point where I'm confined to a wheelchair. Right. Their thresholds were so vastly different because what we experience becomes our norm. And that's part of the problem with this law too, is that it leaves it so much in the hands of judges to decide what is unreasonable. Where, where does that judge draw the line? There was a case in Manitoba in the late eighties, just shortly after I moved here, that of a judge who ruled that a child who had been kicked and punched by his father, who the violence was so extreme, the mother left the home with the child and went to a shelter. His father had a history of domestic violence. There were marks left. The imprint of the child's sweater was left on him. He was bruised. The judge said, this should never have come before the court. This is mild compared to what I experienced as a child. That was his reasoning. Hmm. So, you know, I'm okay. Beating did me good. Didn't hurt me. This isn't anything to worry about. What the law does is shift that norm and all the education that comes with the law. You can't have one without the other. Education alone is not sufficient because the law contradicts it. Many social workers have reported that they have a very hard time saying to parents, you shouldn't hit your child (laughs) because the parents say, but the law says I can or, but so then they're stuck saying, yeah, okay, but you can't hit them on the head and you can't hit them with an object. You can only hit them below the chin with your hand, okay? And if they're in this age range, totally undoes all the education that uh, people in the communities are trying to do. You know, there are so many people in Canada who are working so hard to end violence against children, and that's completely undermined by this law. So no you can't have education with a law reform but if you do the law reform and nobody knows about it or you don't provide the supports and information that people need in order to shift their behavior then that law reform is not going to be as successful as it could be there's a very interesting study of five countries that were where large surveys were done at different points so some had banned corporal punishment two had one had done and done a lot of public education. One had done public education, but no law reform. One had done law reform, no public education. They, they had kind of a, a bit of a quasi-experimental design. And they did these huge surveys in all these countries. And what they found was that the changes were greatest in attitudes and behavior, where you had both law reform and public education, followed by law reform alone, then followed by public education alone, then followed by neither which was France, which had a very high level of violence against children. They have since changed their law and prohibited corporal punishment. Well, (laughs) here is hoping that we follow that lead and the lead of 65 other countries and two UK territories and uh, the rest of the world and that we will get on board. That isn't all the time that we have. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me about this. Uh, 30 years of advocating for this, Here's hoping now is finally the time that the ball gets rolling here in Canada and uh, our fingers are crossed.
it's time to just stand up for children and be the voice that they don't have in government. Thank you so much for your time and your interest in this issue. And uh, I encourage everyone who wants to see this law change to write a letter to Senator Kutcher at the Senate of Canada and let him know. Uh, it's very important. Uh, it's easy to not act because you just assume, well, of course, this is going to happen. But um, showing the support is a very important part of the whole initiative. So I appreciate this opportunity to let people know that this is happening. There are also some resources and articles in the show notes from Dr. Durant that detail this advocacy effort and the science behind ending corporal punishment for everyone. My thanks to Dr. Durant for taking the time to speak with us, to our sponsorship and development lead, Catherine McLaren, who had to take off early in the episode, and to you for listening, streaming, downloading, and leaving comments and reviews on our podcast platforms. Mindful is booked, written, and published by me, Eric Bullman. Our hosts today were me and Catherine McLaren. Our producer and editor is Jamie Montgomery, and our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.